Portland Youth Philharmonic, America's longest-running youth orchestra, is currently celebrating their historic 100th season, and they'll be extending that run this Saturday, March 2nd, at Portland's Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. The program, titled Serenade in the Wind, includes Amy Beach's Gaelic Symphony, Jesse Montgomery's Strum for String Orchestra, and Jeff Scott's Paradise Valley Serenade, with special guest the Amani Winds. By the way, both Jesse and Jeff won awards at the 2024 Grammy ceremonies just a few weeks ago. We're fortunate to have PYP's musical director, David Hatner, and composer Jeff Scott, Grammy award-winning composer Jeff Scott, here to give us a preview. David, the March 2nd concert continues PYP's historic season 100, and you have quite a program with Amy Beach's Gaelic Symphony, Jesse Montgomery's Strum for String Orchestra, and Jeff Scott's Paradise Valley Serenade. How'd you go about putting the program together? Is there a common thread between these pieces? They're all American. That's the most common thread. The impetus for this program is that it's the tour program. We're going to take this program and go and play it in um, Strathmore at Bethesda, Maryland, which is halfway in between Baltimore and Washington, and in New York City at the Manhattan School of Music. Yeah, exciting. I I read about that. That's March 28th in New York, and Jeff Scott and the Imani Winds will be there? I I believe everyone's going to be there. Certainly the Imani Winds will. Oh, yes, they're part of the show. (laughs) And I believe Jeff, yes, he'll be at um, at least one of our tour concerts, and then we'll also play it near Boston, Massachusetts at Mechanics Hall in Worcester, Mass, which is um, notable for its nearly perfect acoustics. So we're really looking forward to hearing the orchestra in these really fine concert spaces and and being able to expose our music and uh, you know our, our whole western ethos to uh to, to the i call it the land of the dinosaurs where these giant <laughs> uh, giants of orchestral history reside and sort of rule everything and so we're, we're the um although we are very old we're not from a part of the country that the east coast thinks thinks of as producing uh, all the musicians so we want to go and show them we can we can do it too and that leads us to our first piece uh as musical director, you've showcased women composers and people of color, and the program's no exception. So we have Amy Beach, a white woman, Jesse Montgomery, black woman, Jeff Scott, black man, African-American. So let's start with Beach's Gaelic Symphony. Uh, she's from that dinosaur part of the country, from Boston originally, wrote the symphony in 1894, and I read it was the first symphony composed and published by a female American composer. Uh, you played it with PYP in November 2019. I think it was its Portland premiere. That performance is up on YouTube, by the way, and has been viewed over 35,000 times. It's over, I, I believe it's over 40,000 now. Okay, so yeah. so 40,001, because I just watched it again yesterday, and I loved it. It's lush, it's romantic. So uh, is that the reason you're bringing it back? I mean, it's a milestone work, and the orchestra is in a milestone season. You're on to it, Ken. The, the, that YouTube is maybe the reason, because uh, having so many views 40,000 is not a lot in YouTube terms but for a symphony particularly one that is obscure by classical standards and not too often performed 40,000 in 4 years is a lot of views so i thought we were associated with this piece and we should uh, embrace that and i i thought uh, at the time we did it that the musicians had a unique openness to it and also a deep love for it this is my 16th season. It's only the third symphony I'm conducting for the second time. So I feel a responsibility towards it that, that I've 
uh, spent so much time studying it, and I sort of feel like I've solved some of the things that help to um, put it across to an audience. It's a long symphony, so it, it just needs as much uh, attention from the conductor and the orchestra to um, solve its little problems as it can get. But I agree, it's a beautiful symphony. The Irish inspirations, particularly in its middle two movements, are apparent, and those are wonderful melodies and great for symphonic development. And people who love the New World Symphony, which was its immediate predecessor and, and perhaps greatest inspiration, uh, will find much to love in this symphony. It's in the same key. It has mostly the same form. It has a, you know, a big part for the English horn, like the New World Symphony. So it's really, uh, she was learning from the best. Uh, she was a young woman when she wrote it, only 27 years old or so, and unfortunately did not follow it up with symphonies two, three, four, and so forth. That was her it's, only one, yes. Yes, it, it was very popular in its day. I'm, I'm told the Boston Symphony played it many times until about 1920 when they stopped programming it, and I don't believe have programmed it since. So we're, we're taking it back to the East Coast in hopes of maybe uh, creating some interest in it. There's a composer and music critic, uh, Jonathan Blumhofer, and he called it by far the finest symphony by an American composer before Ives, and by a wide margin better than a lot that came after him. It surely is the most exciting symphony penned by an American before World War I. And we mentioned that I think you gave uh, it its Portland premiere five and a half years ago or so. Why do you think it took so long to bring the Gaelic to local audiences? And why did it kind of die off on the East Coast uh, with the Boston Symphony stop playing it after a while? You know, the um, <laughs> the effects of uh, the way society had uh, viewed women at that time was very harsh and lasting. And uh, it, it's like a lot of different aspects of musical programming. Sometimes I think orchestras and presenters are presenting pieces because they're being presented elsewhere. And for the same thing, if uh, orchestras are not presenting symphonies, then people don't present them. And they just assume, especially after so many years, that the piece has not stood the test of time and therefore is not worth presenting. And um, it wasn't even recorded until the 1960s. And at that time, when it was recorded, it was recorded poorly and played poorly. And uh, for instance, the, the third movement uh, was done so slowly that they had to cut it to fit it on a record. Uh, so nobody really heard this piece at all by a professional orchestra playing at its best until the D Detroit Symphony recorded it about 1990. Uh, that's a long time to sit dormant and, and unheard. So I think nobody really put the, um, the sort of effort that automatically would go into one of the minor symphonies by Dvorak or, or the acknowledged masters. And during the pandemic and some of the events surrounding that, that were going on sociologically, a lot of people said, we better look at some of these um, composers who have not been played and make sure we they were really fairly judged. And, and uh, that's how I came across this symphony. I had known about its existence in forever, but hadn't really given it much, uh, much study. Uh, so um, I think probably in 2018, I decided uh, I better t take a look and I thought, you know, it's a, it's not only a good symphony, it's a good piece for the orchestra for the teaching, you know, it has to be also good that they can learn something from it, which I think it's a real challenge. So I, I think that it's a, 
it'll be great for them. A good follow-up to the Dvorak Symphony that we played in November. Now, the second piece on Saturday's program is another female composer, a contemporary composer, Jessie Montgomery, and the piece is Strum for String Orchestra. I think this is the first of her compositions to be played by PYP? That's right. And how did you learn about Jessie and her work and, and pick Strum? Well, Jessie Montgomery is at the forefront of contemporary orchestral music. Uh, she's been the composer in residence of the Chicago Symphony, which is a very lofty place uh, to which one can rise. So most of us had um, heard of Jessie and uh, her works are really being just played uh, many places. And it was sort of like, I've got to include her in a program and looking for the right piece. And then last season, our PYP principal players put together a string quintet and played strum for one of our chamber music concerts. And uh, I heard them rehearsing it and they gave me a score to it. And I you know, listened to them play it. And by the time I listened to it three or four times, I already could see like what the uh, potential was for our entire string orchestra to take the stage and play such a brilliant virtuoso and uh, inspiring uh, dynamic work. I, I just love it so much. I feel like it's um, a modern classic. It's only a little over 10 years old, but it's already been played certainly many times by string quartets and string quintets and certainly quite a bit by string orchestras. And uh, I feel like the energy that our string body brings to its playing uh, will bring something very special to it. I've been trying to inspire them. 10 years ago when we were at the 90th anniversary, we played a a piece by Leroy Anderson, a silly, meaningless piece called Plink, Plank, Plunk for String Orchestra. (laughs) Put it on YouTube and it has half a million views there. (laughs) uh, Because they played it so, um, so, so well. They played everything that's on the page, which makes the piece just spring to life. And I said, this is, this is your chance to do something like that for a piece that's much loftier and, and has more substance, but is uh, something that people will, will really enjoy. And you'll inspire other people to program the music. So that's sort of the sub goal, in addition to giving a brilliant performance of a great work, is to um, uh, share that uh, energy that they uh, almost uniquely among orchestras bring to their work, uh, along with their, their great refinement and precision, because the, the work is metrically very intricate. It's a challenge. It's only, you know, six or seven minutes, but we've We've spent nearly an hour a week on it in string rehearsals, which is a lot of minutes for a very short piece, but I've just been going over it bar by bar just to try to, you know, so it really sparkles. So I, people should come hear that. It's a small part of the program, but it's it's going to be very exciting. Also, I, I mentioned in the intro that uh, she's one of the uh, Grammy award-winning composers on the program along with Jeff Scott. She won for, uh, this was just a few weeks ago, the 2024 Grammy for Best Contemporary Classical Composition. That was for a different piece called Rounds, uh, which I haven't heard yet, but I'll look up. Uh, I'm wondering if there's more Jesse Montgomery in the future of PYP. Well, it's funny that you should mention Rounds because I bought the score to it and I've, I've talked to a pianist about doing a project next year that will include Rounds. And uh, the pianist is very enthusiastic about it. So stay tuned, Ken. It most likely would be with our, our Camerata PYP Chamber Orchestra. Uh, Rounds is a, a fantastic piece. And the combination of piano and strings is magical. If you were at our opening concert a year ago, when we played Bruce Stark's Variations for Piano and Strings, yes. uh, that, that was just 
phenomenal. We we everybody loved that. So uh, we've, I've been looking for more pieces to to do for that combination. And uh, round certainly came to my attention. I I think it's a brilliant score. It's fully deserving of the Grammy Award, and you know it was commissioned by Dodge and Pratt, and has recently come out of what they call embargo, where where he is the only pianist allowed to play it. So now anyone can uh, can perform it. So we're hoping. Um, that will be one of the first next season to to give that work and uh, present it to Portland because it's uh, well, like I said, she's she's one of the leading composers of the day, and uh, all of us are very impressed with her uh, prowess at writing for the orchestra. Jeff PYP featured the world premiere of your composition, The Journey, last March, and that was actually a collaboration between you and the musicians in the orchestra. Now, David and PYP, along with the Imani Winds, will be performing Paradise Valley Serenade on Saturday. How did you and David meet and make that connection to PYP? He told me that you were musicians together. You played together. Yeah, we were in the grind in New York City, freelancing and taking any and every day. I wasn't doing very much composing commercially at that point. I was doing most of my composing and arranging for my wind quintet, Imani Winds. We'll be playing the piece. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, but as a member of the ensemble and member of a wind quintet, which doesn't have nearly the repertoire that a string quartet, say, has, my charge and the charge of the flute player of the group, uh, Valerie Coleman, was to bring music, bring new music, arrangements, find, you know, compose stuff, commission stuff. So that my main focus was contributing music to that ensemble. And in the last, I'd say, 10, 12 years, I really been dedicating my my time to commissions for orchestras, soloists, chamber music ensembles. And David got wind of that. And the very first thing actually that I composed for him was not the piece, The Journey. It was actually a horn quartet. During COVID, he wanted to keep the musicians engaged, the young musicians of PYP. And he had already they had already started this initiative of uh, underrepresented composers. And David said, hey, you know, would you write something for our horns to keep them engaged? So I wrote this horn piece called Circle Dance, uh, sort of an Africana kind of thing, lots of cool rhythms and everything. And the kids ate it up from breakfast, you know, it did a great job. And and then, you know, he says, you know, I got another commission. I think I want to ask me to write a piece for the full orchestra. Let's do it. Let's do it. But I said, I want to get the kids involved. I want to get them involved. And what well, the primary reason, in all honesty, was that teaching here and then being in touch with a lot of the young people who had to deal with COVID and not be able to collaborate together, not be able to, to play together. I wanted them to be in part of this music making because for so long, they just weren't able to collaborate. They weren't able to sit next to each other to, to have a say or about anything. And so I said, you know what, not only am I going to write this piece, I want them to tell me what they want to play. What kind of sounds do they want to make? What kind of drama or or love or whatever. You know. <laughs> I said, give me adjectives. Give me give me stories. Tell me. And so he did that. And then after I wrote the music, I said, I don't want to name it. I don't want to title it. I'm going to let them rehearse it for a few weeks. And then however they feel about the music after they've rehearsed it for a while, they can title it. And so they did all the titling. I basically just supplied the music. <laughs> now, the the piece they'll be playing Saturday, Paradise Valley Serenade, very interesting story. Uh, you were inspired by the Paradise Theater in Detroit, which was a jazz venue from 1941 through 1951 with some of the biggest names in American jazz. 
What did you learn when you started researching the Paradise and uh, this once thriving African-American community where it was located in Detroit? Great question. Well, first of all, I should say I knew nothing. I knew nothing about that history until um, actually a previous commission from a group called Acropolis Reef Quintet. Oh, they did a homage to Paradise Valley, right? Exactly right. Uh -huh. I wrote a piece called Homage to, to Paradise Valley. Um, they invited me to the Charles Wright Museum, the African American Museum in Detroit. And they, they said, let's do a walkthrough. If you see something that inspires you, let's do that. So I get through the museum and I get to the part in where they have their, this, they actually have this fictional downtown Detroit area from the 1940s. And they've got these, you're walking through, it's like you're walking down Main Street and you're going past all of these like speakeasies and these bars and these, these jazz clubs and uh, shops and they're all black owned. I walked through and I thought to myself, wow, I didn't know about this. Then I'm reading the plaques and they're talking about how it was basically like Harlem in the 30s and 40s. Oh, I didn't know that. Then you get to the end of this exhibit and you realize they start talking about how the old neighborhood was racist for urban development and no longer exists. That happened here in Portland too? Exactly. I said it sounded a little familiar. Yes, uh, probably many cities across the country. And that was part of the uh, the Great Migration, right, uh, from uh, African Americans coming up from the South to the industrialized North for jobs and or, also or maybe a little bit more freedom. Right. <laughs> and, and jobs. And, you know, it's like, all right, Jim Crow or like work. Right. Easy choice. <laughs> and they created this community in what was called Paradise Valley and another area called Black bottom, which actually has nothing to do with the skin color, but actually of the soil. The, the soil. Ah. Uh, it, was, it was dubbed as so rich and dark. They called it black bottom. Um, uh, the Italians actually called it. But in any case, so I do that commission and I've got that history in me. Detroit Symphony musicians come to me and say, We'd love to have you write a, a piece for, for Wind Quintet solo in front of the orchestra. They had played another piece of mine and they got the okay from their administration to do a commission. And I said, sure, <laughs> Detroit Symphony. Um, and I, I went up, when I talked with the general manager, we're trying to find out like, well, is there a angle you want to go at? Is there anything? He says, well, I'd love to do something that's sort of dedicated to the venue or the town. And I said, I got just the thing. <laughs> and I had researched like you said, about the 40s and 50s. And I said, did you know? And I said, did you know that this very hall that you're playing in now, Orchestra Hall, was a jazz venue from 1950? And kind of looked like he was confused, like he might have known, but wasn't sure. I said, I would love to do a piece that was dedicated to the history, of not only of this town, but of this very hall. And so, you know, the, the piece uh, starts out uh, just real quickly, it's kind of like a, a a morning in the day of Paradise Valley. Any other urban town, people wake up, they, they do they hustle and bustle, they work, they go to work. But unlike other urban towns, this one turns into the hottest jazz scene you could ever want to be at. And so it's it quickly goes from this warm hug of music to like down home jazz, raw, raunchy, you know. That's the first movement. The second movement is called Paradise Lost, but Not Forgotten. Uh, it's a fictional storytelling by an elder 
to a young person about the history that once was. And at some point in the movement, you actually hear the raising, the implosion of buildings being sort of brought down. And that's the, you know, and you can also hear, I make a point where you hear the smoke rising a little bit. And it's kind of obvious, it's very uh, programmatic in that regard. The last movement, however, is my dedication to Cab Calloway. Because uh, one of those who graced the stage, you know, him and Ella and Duke, when those guys came to town, those little jazz clubs were not sufficient because, you know, thousands of people wanted to hear them. And so they had to do it at uh, Orchestra Hall, the big venue. And so uh, I said, I can only imagine what it must have been like to see Cab Calloway doing his thing with his band and all those antics and the double entendres and, you know, Heidi, 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 oh, on the right. And so I wrote a movement that really said, stop the trombone doing waka, 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 and all that stuff. Um, and, and just real fun, fun music. And so the piece really is just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I read that you grew up listening. Uh, you, you've talked a lot about jazz and you write classical music too. Where, well, a blend, actually. And you listen to a variety of music, uh, blues, jazz, soul, gospel, and wanted to be, quote, the Michael Jackson of French horn because it was the music that I loved. Besides a great talent for making music, you and Michael now share one more thing in common. You're both Grammy Award winners. And Jeff, <laughs> yours yours came just a few weeks ago. That's incredible. I, I read you said it was a surprise and quite an emotional moment, too. Well, thank you. Uh, but in all due respects, my <laughs> 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 Grammy next to Michael Jackson. Basically changed the world with his music making and dancing. Thank you very much. I'm humbled. But I, I have to admit, I am still in shock. Winning a Grammy um, and being, rec well, I should say being nominated and being recognized for the craft that you create is already, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, it's already just a miracle because there's so much great music that that's created annually by amazing artists. And so to rise to that level where they've actually nominated you as part of four or five amazing other artists. And you go to these shows, and I've been before, <laughs> you go to these shows and you really only go for the party. Because you know you're not going to win. John Williams knows he's going to win. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jeff Scott, Beyonce knows she's going to win. I, and you saw her there, Jeff? You saw oh, I sought her out. Are you kidding? Uh, uh, wow. My my daughter-in-law will be so jealous. <laughs> I was close enough to get in trouble, but not close enough to actually, you know, to, to like shake her hand. But, you know, you go there and you, you honestly are anticipating that someone else will win and you'll save face and they'll say congratulations. But when they called our name, I have to admit, Ken, I, I literally, I, I, I sucked in air and I couldn't breathe for about three seconds. I, ah, not believe it and it just it, it remains a humbling uh shock really that our work was uh the whole ensemble just fantastic and that it, it because also what it represents is this marriage of classical and jazz and one uh project and you know in my mind that's what america is about that we're it, you know it's like duke said it's there's only one kind of music good and bad <laughs> <laughs> you know and Bach and Coltrane are like the epitome of what, you know, what good is. And I thought I'd put those three together and then a bunch of my own personal music and, uh, and see what sticks. 
and it stuck. David, where can listeners find out more about Portland Youth Philharmonic and Saturday's concert and purchase tickets for the Schnitzer or the live stream? Our website is portlandyouthphil.org, or you can Google Portland Youth Philharmonic, uh, that's with Philharmonic with a PH, and be taken to our website, which we'll be happy to link you to the ticketing page. You'll you'll be delighted at the price of the ticket. It's, it's really very reasonable. I'm always delighted at the price. It's and, yeah. and it's uh, you know the music uh, goes far beyond what what we're charged for it. Well, I appreciate that. I know you you've always been a a fan, and it's it's so difficult to describe in words this orchestra, which has been amazing and delighting audiences for a hundred years, ninety nine and a half <laughs> years, and every concert that we've play that I've conducted and and um, I've, I think I've between our chamber orchestra and PYP I've conducted over 90 programs now at least one person who's never heard the orchestra before is like I, I'm honestly astonished at how good this orchestra actually is you know young people often rise to the occasion but normally it's about preparation you sink to your level of preparation and our students are so dedicated to being prepared and it's uh, very healthy for them, for the concerts, but also for their lives. The more you get to know PYP, the more you'll be amazed at what being in music at the level we we execute it does for them and their careers and their, their lives. We've been talking with David Hatner, musical director of the Portland Youth Philharmonic and composer Jeff Scott. David will be conducting PYP's Serenade in the Wind concert featuring Jeff's Paradise Valley Serenade this Saturday, March 2nd, 7.30 p.m. at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in Portland. You can find out more online and purchase tickets for the Schnitzer or the live stream at portlandyouthphil.org. This is Ken Jones for Cable's News In-Depth.